Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kimber Donovan. And this week, uh, we're following up on what we promised in our previous episode, which is that we are covering a short story that is very much related in some ways to Dead Man's Folly, except with a very different detective. Would you like to tell us what we're talking about, Kemper? I would. We are covering Green Shaw's Folly, a Miss Marple short story. If anyone has not listened to the Dead Man's Folly episode in which I went through the somewhat tortuous publication history of that novel, um, there is a weird little connection between this short story and that novel because Christie wrote a novella version of Dead Man's Folly that she was not able to sell because novellas are hard to sell. That novella was supposed to fund a church stained glass project at Christie's local church. She was a very religious person. She observed regularly, so um, she wanted to give back to her church. And this was... Do we know, Kemper, if that... uh a stained glass window was actually ever installed? I don't know for sure. I assume it was because this short story is what she supplied in place of the novella that she had written, The Greenshore Folly, which she wasn't able to sell. So this one was indeed published, as we will get to in just a moment. And I have to assume that the proceeds of said publication went to the stained glass window. I remember that the church was um, imagining that the donation would would be somewhere in and around a thousand pounds. And, you know, I have to imagine for a UK and US serialization, and then perhaps even the royalties, you know, a percentage maybe of the royalties from the book collection thereafter. Um, It was probably mainly just from the magazine serialization that the funds would have come, but I hope so. Yeah, we should we should uh, investigate a little further. And if any listeners know, that would be wonderful information to have. It really would. I, I find it curious that she had to come up with a title that was similar to Green Shore Folly, which is presumably why we have Green Shaw's Folly. But from there, boy, does she depart. You know, different detective. We jump from Poirot to Marple and just a, a totally different kind of a story from what we have in the Greenshore Folly or Dead Man's Folly. So, uh, you know, uh, yet another instance of the fecundity of Agatha Christie's brain. She just never had a shortage of ideas, did she? No, no. It's very consistently impressive. With that in mind, could you tell us a little bit about the publication history of Green Shaw's Folly, Catherine Brobeck? Yeah, so serialized in the Daily Mail in the UK in December of 1956, and then in the US in Ellery Queen in spring of 1957. And then it was published in The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding Collection in the UK in October of 1960. It's the only uh, non-Poirot story in that collection. Mm. And in the U.S. in 1961 in Doublesin and other stories. Right. And that initial publication in serial form is, of course, right around when Dead Man's Folly was published, since obviously she wrote it right around the time that she was expanding her novella. She was also replacing her novella with this one. So that all lines up, which is wonderful. I suppose I should tell everyone who the victim is in Greenshaw's Folly. That would be one Catherine Greenshaw. That's Catherine with a K, not a C, as uh, my beloved co-host spells her name. You know, I certainly believe the C spelling to be the better one. The superior one, of course. You know, (laughs) but I would say that, wouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this Catherine is the owner of Greenshaw's Folly, and she is the granddaughter of its eccentric builder and its last remaining heir. And she is seemingly shot in uh, her jugular vein with an arrow. Rather a gruesome means of murder here. So the suspects are Mrs. Creswell, the housekeeper, who has sort of a French Marquise updo, which, by the way, where have we seen that? We saw it with uh, Mrs. Oliver. I was going to say, obviously, that makes makes us think of Ariadne Oliver. (laughs) Um, And she seems to be from a lower class than she's letting on. Uh, There's an entire thing about her ages. Right. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. 
In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, Hurricanes hardly ever happen. Oh, no, no, no. Next up, we have Alfred, who is the handsome young man who works as the gardener slash handyman at Greenshaw's Folly. And he very much dislikes Mrs. Cresswell, and he is also said to be quite lazy. Right. Then we have Nat Fletcher, who's Miss Greenshaw's nephew, the son of her late sister, Nettie, who was disinherited for marrying a rogue. Apparently a very handsome rogue, but nevertheless. Is there any other type of rogue other than a handsome rogue? (laughs) I don't think you'd get away with it otherwise, right? And then I suppose we do have a, a fourth suspect who is Lou Oxley. She was on the premises, but she really hardly counts. And she's never presented as a suspect per se. Um, and we will get to what is going on with her in a moment. Catherine Brobeck, let's get to the world as it appears to be. And Mr. Raymond West. Oh, our friend Raymond West. He is the first person we meet on these pages with his friend Horace Bindler, who's a famous literary critic. Of course. They've taken a trip down to the countryside, but they're staying with Raymond's Aunt Jane, of course, Miss Marple. But because Raymond wants to ensure that his incredibly erudite, sophisticated, snobby friend is suitably impressed with this like foray into the country and not bored, Raymond takes him to visit Greenshaw's Folly, which is a monstrosity of a country house constructed in the late 19th century to look like a combination of, let's say at a minimum, five different architectural styles from different continents. Horace loves monstrosities. He has his camera out. He is so excited. He sees it and he just starts snapping photographs and he thinks that it's going to be the perfect addition to his collection of like architectural eyesores. This is definitely one of Christie's depictions of an effeminate man. I, um, I, I suppose. I mean, I think also just maybe academic. Yes. You know, four lines into the story, he's screeching. His voice rises in a high screech of, and I love this word, aesthetic delight. She chooses to put an apostrophe in place of the A in aesthetic, which well, I really appreciated. Well, and also he keeps calling Raymond West darling. He says, but my dear, how what? Wonderful, And then his voice deepens in reverent awe. It's unbelievable. Out of this world, a period piece of the best. As I sometimes do with my dramatic readings, especially, oh. I think, of these types of characters in Christie, perhaps I'm exaggerating a little bit, but... Really? Really? You don't say? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's a little bit warranted. But it's, it's one of her lighter characterizations, I think, of such a man. I didn't really find it problematic or anything. I actually found Horace to be pretty amusing. And I did love the description of the house because she doesn't describe it directly. She does it through dialogue. And Christie's dialogue is always excellent because Raymond and Horace are talking about the different influences that, you know, must have gone into the design of the house. This is Raymond talking. He says, he had visited the Chateau of the Loire, don't you think? Those turrets. And then, rather unfortunately, he seems to have traveled to the Orient. The influence of the Taj Mahal is unmistakable. I rather like the Moorish wing, he added, and the traces of a Venetian palace. (laughs) Like this thing is obviously just a chimera of a house, right? Right. I mean, but in some way, you know, we talked about this in Dead Man's Folly, because if you have like a country estate that has a typical folly garden structure, you might have a temple and a mini Taj Mahal and some sort of pagoda. You might have all of those different buildings. And it's a little bit like this house is combining all those interests into one structure. Right. Well, what's interesting, I didn't really think of it until we were were just discussing it, but she's technically, you know, using the word folly differently, right, in this story, as opposed to in Dead Man's Folly. I mean, there's the double entendre, obviously, of Dead Man's Folly, but there's an architectural folly. But folly here, I think it's more in line with, you know, I always think. Yeah. I mean, I think back to my seventh grade social studies and the purchase of Alaska was always known as Seward's Folly until people actually realize that Alaska was, you know, quite valuable piece of land. I think she's using it similarly here, right? That it's a mistake, a spectacle. Well, sure. But I mean, I think it's still serving a little bit of a double function here. Moving on. They're snooping around the house, right? And who do they come across, Kemper? That would be Miss Greenshaw, of course, the owner of Greenshaw's Folly. 
who is rather uh, dirty, actually, because she is gardening. So she's kind of in the muck of her garden beds. And she's, you know, rather shabbily dressed and just seems like a character from the get-go. And she waxes on romantically about her house and about her status as the last of her family. And then she suddenly asks Raymond and Horace to please come up to her grandfather's library with her. So she tells them before they go up that she needs her will witnessed. And she can't have Mrs. Creswell serve as witness because the person inheriting can't legally be a witness to the will. And Mrs. Creswell hears this and acknowledges this. And so the two men go up with Miss Greenshaw. And she explains that she's leaving everything to Mrs. Creswell because she's been with her some time. And she's leaving her what money she has in lieu of paying her wages. Which is an interesting incentive structure to set up there. I mean, I thought that Miss Greenshaw was a savvy older person until I got to that point of the story. It's a little bit like people working for a bonus structure, I suppose, except this would be like instead of getting paid $20 an hour and working towards like a giant payout at the end of the year, you're getting paid nothing in the hopes of that uh, giant payout at the end of the year. Well, and it's not even a giant payout at the end of the year. I mean, a bonus structure also works because, yes, you're still getting a salary, but then you continue to get a bonus at the end of each year. So you're incentivized to, you know, keep the company afloat, say. But if you're only getting paid out once, which would be upon the death of your employer, hmm, that's an interesting scenario in terms of what you may or may not be incentivized to do as an employee. Right. Also, it makes you essentially an indentured servant. Yes. Would this really be legal? (laughs) No. No. I mean, I can't imagine that it would be. Well, I mean, I suppose that if she's being provided room and board, maybe there's some argument. I can't tell you what the British labor laws were in 1956. So It's certainly a, a curious setup here. So the men sign. This will. And I'd just like to point out what Christy writes um, as Raymond West signs. Then he quickly scrawled the well-known signature for which his morning's mail usually brought at least six demands a day. Really? Yeah. Do we? I didn't realize that that Raymond West was, you know, that commercially popular of an author. Although perhaps getting six autograph demands in the mid-50s was less significant than I think it would be now. I don't know. Okay, so Miss Greenshaw puts the will into a copy of a book called Lady Audley's Secret. I've heard of it. And, and <laughs> um, it's an old-timey bestseller. <laughs> and uh, Raymond West kind of thinks to himself, well, I mean, I'm not quite a bestseller. He's very critical of all of the books, right? Because he says that... He well, says, they're, they're unread. They're the kind of right. books that are like leather bound and nobody actually reads them. Like someone bought a raft of quote unquote great books bound in fancy leather. It shoved them onto the shelves and they have not been cracked Well, it's, it's a little bit like how today, if you're an interior decorator, you can buy books in bulk, beat up used books in bulk by Spine Color. Right. It's a little bit the same thing. Yeah. So many people arrange their books by spine color these days. Have you noticed that? I have noticed that. I don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. I find it almost a little offensive, actually. Well, I like, I mean, aesthetically, I understand it. I just would never be able to find anything ever. I mean, it's putting, you know, aesthetic considerations above all else where books are concerned, which for me is problematic. Yeah, I completely agree. Although I can't say that I have a good system in place. I just know where everything is. Like if anybody else came in here, they'd think like, what is the organizing principle? I have one whole sort of bookcase that I try to keep my nonfiction bookcase. And then I have a whole mystery kind of area. Of course, you know, half of it is taken up with Christy and Christy's secondary reference material and whatnot. But then I have one whole area that are the books that I like the most. (laughs) It's like books that I really love. And then another whole bookcase that's books I only kind of like. And it's just like no one would ever know that. And I kind of don't even want anyone to know that because if they did, then that might sort of be an issue or lead to awkward conversations. So... That at least suggests that you read them. 
Whereas yes. these these books have not been read. Yeah, that, and that is to be fair to Raymond West, that is his main point. His biggest issue is that these books don't seem to be read, and uh, as an author and lover of books, you know, he just cannot abide that. But no. we digress. <laughs> we do. Again, though, to make the point, she does put the will in this specific book, and they see where she puts it, because right. that's important. She also mentions that she wishes she knew a writer to go through her grandfather's old diaries, because her vision is failing, and she can't quite see them to read them, and there are stacks of them. Raymond says, oh, you know, actually, I might know somebody. And she says, oh, you know, I'll, I'll think about, like, the idea. And also, Horace is still taking lots of photographs, um, including of a clock, apparently from the Paris exhibition, which is going to matter in a second because on their way out, Miss um, Greenshaw makes a joke that she thought they might have been policemen when they first came to the house. And Raymond West says, you know, why? And she just laughs and says... If you want to know the time, ask a policeman. Very cryptic remark. Very cryptic. Back at Miss Marple's house, the men recount the entire story to Miss Marple, to Raymond's wife, Joan West, nay, Joyce Lamprier, and to Joan's (laughs) rather despondent niece, Louisa, that would be Lou Oxley. Uh, who has recently been separated from her husband and who has two small children to support. And she is very much lacking in funds. So she's kind of in a, in a bad way here. Miss Marple finds the entire story of the visit to be somewhat perplexing. She's fixated on that policeman comment. She's like, what, what is this with the policeman? So if we hadn't noted it already, let's note <laughs> that policeman comment. Christy is definitely playing fair there. Because Lou is in need of some funds, Raymond suggests that maybe it would be a good idea to write to Miss Greenshaw and ask if Lou could be the one to transcribe those diaries for her. And Lou seems game. Cut to a week or so later. And uh, guess what? She has been employed by Miss Greenshaw. It's perfect. It's en route to her children's school. So she gets to stay at home with them in the morning, bring them to school, go back to Green Toss Folly, do her work, and then go pick her kids up and go home. So it's like really like an ideal situation for her. And she gets to work in this beautiful library and have tea brought to her. You know, this is the first day. And again, she just sits there all day transcribing and reading. On rare occasions, she sees Mrs. Creswell, and she has very little patience for Alfred because none of them do, because he more or less seems to sit around and smoke unless he notices that somebody's watching him. She does note that he's very handsome, and when uh, she's in the hall of the house, she notices a painting of the builder of uh, Greenshaw's Folly himself, and uh, she notices a slight resemblance. He's a little um, corpulent, I believe, in the painting, but like there's some notes of it that suggest that maybe he was handsome when he was young. Right, that maybe Mr. Greenshaw in Days of Yore was handsome along the lines of Alfred. Mm-hmm. Very much, maybe, along Shade, the lines of Alfred. Shades of Hercule Poirot's Christmas, perhaps? Mm-hmm. All right, perhaps. so... On day one of her job, she is also asked by Miss Greenshaw to send an invitation to her nephew, Nat Fletcher, who is in a successful play nearby. Oh, that's right. He's an actor. In a play. Huh. You don't say. That's interesting. She says that she would like for Nat to come for a visit the next day. On the next day, on day two of of Lou's best job ever, which is about to go south very quickly, (laughs) poor Lou, she's set up comfortably in the study, and she's so pleased at her good fortune here, getting this great gig. When it gets later in the day, she's given tea. Her door is, is shut at that point. Still, you know, cool, cool, all good, living the dream. But then she hears some screaming out the window. And um, when she goes over to the window, she sees Miss Greenshaw stumbling from her flower bed. She apparently had been out there gardening, clutching her throat with an arrow between her hands and screaming, he shot me. And, you know, she sees this arrow being clutched there at her throat. So Miss Greenshaw disappears out of view. Lou can't see her from her vantage point at the window. And Lou runs for the door, but it's locked. 
there's a phone in the room. So she dials the, you know, emergency line and is leaning out the window again, trying to figure out what is happening here. When she sees Mrs. Cresswell, the housekeeper also leaning out of a window in a, in a different part of the building locked in her room. So the two of them seem to be stuck. Right. And a constable appears, but he is decidedly unhelpful. They continue to remain trapped in their rooms until finally another sergeant comes who finally lets them out and informs them that indeed Miss Greenshaw is dead with an arrow in her throat. If that's not enough at that point, aforementioned Nat Fletcher, who also is a very nice looking young man, he shows up having, I guess, become lost on his way there. So he asks what's wrong, and, uh, you know, a lot is wrong, and Alfred is nowhere to be found. Mm. Cut to a gathering of one Inspector Welch. That's our Inspector Destoir. We've also got Lou Oxley, Raymond West, and off to the side, Miss Marple, of course. And Inspector Welch needs to go over Lou's statement with her again. So he kind of does this en masse, which... Doesn't really seem according to uh, official protocol, but hey, it, it certainly makes things easier for purposes of telling the story right. that Miss Marple can be here. You see, the problem is that every single person involved has an alibi. Lou and Mrs. Cresswell were locked in their rooms and could only watch what was happening. And, and it is also noted that the locks in their doors were such that there's no funny business possible in terms of either of them being able to lock themselves in. From the inside, that's they're just like, not possible. They're giant, heavy, antique keys that you wouldn't be able to turn from the inside. Right. None of that kind of putting a pliers in and turning it or, or anything like that. So someone had to have locked them in from the outside. Nat Fletcher was seen at a gas station asking for directions, essentially. I mean, he was lost well after the time that Miss Greenshaw was seen by Lou Oxley from the window, you know, clutching the arrow in her throat. So there's no way he could have gotten to the house in time to actually shoot the arrow into her throat. The times don't match and match up. He has an airtight alibi for that. And Alfred, well, <laughs> lazy Alfred, he skipped out on lunch um, a little early and was actually boozing it up at the local pub in front of many, many people. So he, too, has an airtight alibi because he was at the pub. There's just no way that he could have been on the premises as he should have been if he was not such a 'er ne'er-do-well. Right, right. He very much should have because it's actually like a few minutes before his lunchtime. So basically, he has skipped out well before then. Yeah, to like lunch and and booze it up at the pub. He could not wait to get to the pub. So he was at the pub when he normally would have been alone on the premises. And it's unfortunate, really. And, you know, I think Inspector Welch is kind of wistful about that because Alfred was a member of an archery club and seemed Mm -hmm. to have quite a bit of prowess when it came to the bow and arrow. But... Again, he could not have done it. So Inspector Welch doesn't know what to do. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Catherine, how is your ongoing love affair with Howie the Lizard going these days? You know, it's going really well. Howie and I are definitely in a committed relationship at this point. I'm happy to report that we've been partners on this crazy journey called Best Fiends for, you know, something like 170 levels now. I'm just happy that you're happy, Catherine. I am happy because you know what? There's a current challenge where if you get enough guitars temper then howie becomes a country western singer <gasps> be still my heart even I, I can't even imagine what's what's going on over in your rib cage beyond that as a lover of puzzles and puzzle mysteries best fiends is you know a nice place to be i also really love how the game gets updated every month with new themed events and challenges it means that whenever you think you've seen it all you definitely haven't it's a little bit like agatha christie in that way there's always a new trick that she's got up her sleeve like howie winning big in nashville Exactly. Didn't see that coming. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. 
lucky for us, we are in a miniature puzzle mystery in a Miss Marple story, no less, and we've got some clues to go through. Catherine Brobeck, it's fate. It's, line, it's, you know, it's, it's the stars my, are aligning here for you to my bring us our clue number one because I know that it brings you such joy. Please go ahead. Clue number one. Oh, temper. Clue number one is actors. Oh boy. And I feel a little like a broken record saying it so many times, but actors and their corollary, which is heavily costumed people, are critical clues here. And it's an easy deduction because we've done this before, people. This is not our first time at this rodeo. So who here is an actor and who here is heavily costumed? Is perhaps somebody constantly wearing hats? Is somebody perhaps in a hairdo that could be a wig? These are all possibilities that I'm just throwing out there. But yes, if you were not Ariadne Oliver and you're wearing a Marquise hairdo, uh, you know, is it a wig? And uh, did we have an actor among our list of suspects. And also, I would just add to this, there's all this chatter about policemen. That is a uniform, right? And a uniform is also akin to a costume. And it's something we've seen in many a Christie. You know, it's a little bit of a don't underestimate the help corollary. Yeah. Why not? Let's just throw everything in here under right. the umbrella of clue number one, all the Christie classics. But like people tend to just see the policeman's uniform and not necessarily the person behind it. We've seen this with, you know, maids uniforms and, and other members of the quote unquote help. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we should think about all of those classic Christie preoccupations about people dressing themselves up and pretending to be other people. All right. Clue number two. Wills. We have to take Miss Greenshaw at her word when she is telling Raymond and Horace what is in that will. Per Miss Greenshaw in that scene, Mrs. Cresswell is the person who inherits everything on Miss Greenshaw's death. Which she's been told. Which Mrs. Cresswell has been told. She's very much aware of that. But in terms of the actual contents of the will, you know, we never have the will reproduced within these pages. It's never a document that we are allowed an objective view of. So we should just, you know, be very suspicious and not make any assumptions as to the contents of the will. Clue number three, another favorite, timing. There is a lot made of who is where and when. And it does matter, but not necessarily in the way that it looks also, you have to give Raymond West some credit, which I hate doing. Nobody wants to give Raymond West any credit at all, but he gets hugely excited about the idea that maybe everyone has a fake alibi. Here's the thing. He is slightly wrong about that. That's not exactly what's going on, but he's incredibly close to hitting the mark. Here, we know that the murder was witnessed. Everyone has an alibi. We know that Lou is honest. We know that she looked at the time. So what else is going on here? It's a clue that I think you need to examine in concert with another tried and true Christie classic, which is really eyewitness testimony, right? Because if the sequence of events isn't matching up given what Lou observed or what Lou thought she observed, then perhaps we should look a little bit more closely at what she actually did observe. We'll get there in a second, but that is also another Christie classic there that perhaps we shouldn't believe these very simplistic kind of eyewitness testimony that were supplied via Lou's account of what happened. All right. Final clue is family. All sorts of dysfunctional families in Christie. We hear repeatedly that Miss Greenshaw is the last Greenshaw, but we know that that's not quite true, actually, since her sister's son, Nat, who she was inviting over, seemingly, um, that he is a relative. But... Also, we have that weird moment where Lou is recognizing that Alfred seems to have some sort of family resemblance as well. So we should just be suspicious as to what's going on here in terms of Alfred's potential relation to the family, Nat's motivations here, or what might be interesting him as a family member and technically a a descendant of Miss Greenshaw, even though she's billed as the last remaining heir. So it's really just not as simple as that. And those sorts of complications are always good to keep in mind, uh, especially as we get into our resolution of the story. Take it away, Catherine. So they're all sitting at the West residence 
And Miss um, Marple swiftly asks Inspector Welch, um, after hearing all this, after hearing sort of his summary, he- rehearing Lou's descriptions, Miss Marple asks Inspector Welch if, in fact, the will was not made out to Mrs. Creswell at all. And he looks at her surprised. He nods, and basically what the gist of this is is that it was a cruel joke that Miss Greenshaw used to avoid paying her housekeeper wages. Turns out Mrs. Creswell didn't actually know that. But the will is made out to Alfred Pollock, who, again, and Miss Marple has also deduced this, is technically a Greenshaw, which is why Miss Greenshaw was willing to leave everything to him. So apparently the man who built the house, her grandfather, had some um, illegitimate sons, and they had other sons. And technically that means that Alfred Pollock is Alfred Greenshaw had his paternal line been legitimized. So he is, in fact, the last Greenshaw. Yeah, there's a curious term for it because Miss Marple is the one who says, you know, I should imagine, though perhaps I'm wrong, that there may have been what we might call family reasons. And then Inspector Welch said, it's quite well known in the village, it seems, that Thomas Pollock, Alfred's grandfather, was one of old Mr. Greenshaw's byblows. And I actually circled the term byblows because I had never heard that before. But I suppose what that means is stand-ins, right? Like, even though Mr. Greenshaw was the natural father that this, you know, Thomas Pollock stood in as the legal father for this illegitimate son. Right. Took in a, um, you know, not a nice word, but took in a bastard child, right? Exactly. I had just never heard that phrase before, by blows. Yeah. So he is the last screech. And the difference, and this goes back to the family thing and what we've seen variants on this before too, by the way, where Nettie, her sister's child, doesn't count as a Greenshaw. Nat, even though he's her nephew, is not a Greenshaw. Whereas Alfred, where any of this recognized is. And that's also perhaps just like a weird discrimination that Miss Greenshaw makes. I mean, someone else might not have seen Nat and Alfred all that differently, but... Well, no, and also because you would think that one of them was your sister's kid. Wouldn't that matter to you? But she disapproved, right? She disapproved of her her sister's choice in marriage. There's a bit of gender disparity, shall we say, going on there in treating the illegitimate son, or not even illegitimate son, it's like illegitimate grandson, (laughs) right? Yeah. As the true heir, as opposed to your sister's son. It's interesting. I mean, it's also hard because the sister had been fully disinherited. Right. So that's also part of it. This is a weird tangent, but it makes me think in Wolf Hall and mm-hmm. Bring Up the Bodies and, and, and especially in the televised adaptations of them, the fact that we forget that Henry VIII actually had illegitimate sons before right. he had his official heir. And the idea that he had these kind of healthy, strapping, <laughs> you know, men in the in the prime of health, but they, well, for, for what he needed and what he wanted, they were useless to him. It's like this weird byproduct of the social structure of the day. And we have a, well, I mean, a, a much I less that, lofty version of that here. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that if you were a king, you could choose to legitimize an heir, though. Well, you could choose to legitimize an heir or you could actually choose to delegitimize an heir before they're even born. I mean, that's what a morganatic marriage means, right? You marry someone on the understanding that none of your issue with that person will be heirs. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of ways that you can complicate the issue of inheritance. And we certainly see that here in both Nat and Alfred. But we still haven't actually solved (laughs) who killed poor Miss Greenshaw, have we? No. So back to that timing clue, Alfred, again, as we said, he's a member of the local archery club. He was supposed to be on the job at the time of the murder. So when she says he shot me with an arrow, it is supposed to be so that Lou sees it out the window at exactly the same time when Alfred is supposed to be there because technically he's on the clock. Except, fortunately for him, he didn't want to be there, and he decided to leave early, and it actually just messes with the entire plan because he's not there. 
So we know that he could not have done it, which means that that leaves either an outsider or, you know, we have two other people who could be involved here. So then what is going on here? Well, Mrs. Cresswell did it and she had an accomplice who also did it. And that would be Nat Fletcher. (laughs) So they teamed up to kill Miss Greenshaw for the money. It's a, a combination of either believing Miss Greenshaw that she was leaving all of her money to Mrs. Cresswell, or in the case that she did not, presuming that Nat, as her only descendant, because they didn't know about Alfred, that he would inherit since he would be her next of kin. Honestly, even if they did know about Alfred, it's kind of an open question. If she, if Miss Greenshaw hadn't affirmatively left everything to Alfred, what would have even happened at that point? Prob- so Probably he wouldn't have, because he's never been acknowledged as a member of the family. It's one of the last lines. So because he's not acknowledged as a member of the family, and this is pre, you know, DNA testing. Yeah. So Nat would have received it. And like, here's another, um, what's the funny connection, do we think, between Mrs. Creswell and Nat Fletcher? Well, Miss Marple casually says, well, do you really think that Mr. Fletcher never married again? Miss Marple's making an assumption. We actually don't get confirmation of that. But it seems, given the circumstances, plausible. Well, we do we ever really need confirmation when one Miss Jane Marple makes an assumption, Catherine? <laughs> she is omniscient <laughs> and omnipotent. She is. Do not um, question so- Dark Marple. <laughs> I, n- <laughs> you will, I never You will pay for that. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I'm aware. But also, like, here's the thing. Lou... And this is a thing to remember. Lou never actually met Miss Greenshaw. Lou gets a job from a letter that Raymond West sent. Raymond West has met Miss Greenshaw. Lou has not. She never met Miss Greenshaw. Yeah. So, I mean, just to be completely clear about it, Mrs. Cresswell is Nat Fletcher's stepmother. You know, they cooked up this scheme between the two of them. And the really devious thing they did is that we and Raymond and Horace met the real Miss Greenshaw at the beginning of the story when she signed the will and lied about the contents of the will and was doing her sort of cunning old lady thing. But somewhere between then and the point at which Lou actually came in for the job, Mrs. Cresswell drugged Miss Greenshaw and kept her apparently in a near vegetative state so that she couldn't be neither heard nor seen by Lou. And then Mrs. Cresswell posed as Miss Greenshaw on the few occasions when Lou saw her. You know, for the most part, Lou was interacting with Mrs. Cresswell, who would come in and bring her tea and whatnot. But she she also did see Miss Greenshaw from time to time. And that was never Miss Greenshaw. That was actually just Mrs. Cresswell. Right. And, you know, in a weird, funny way, Raymond West actually set off all these events because while we can assume that Mrs. Creswell and Nat Fletcher were planning this for some time, what they needed was an outside party as a witness. Yep. And so it seems a little bit that Raymond West just randomly sending this letter. Because one of the things that Miss Marple says is, you know, I wondered why somebody who was so cheap. Mm-hmm would pay somebody a decent wage to read through her grandfather's diaries. Right. Yeah, it didn't seem in character with who Miss Greenshaw was, and it in fact wasn't. So yeah, that letter, which was obviously intercepted by Mrs. Cresswell as the housekeeper, I'm sure Miss Greenshaw never saw it, was the perfect entry point into this scheme, which they had presumably cooked up beforehand and were just waiting for the perfect opportunity. So really, this is all Raymond West's fault. I mean, sounds good to me, you know? <laughs> By the way, I, I also have to mention that my favorite part of this is that she was not actually shot with an arrow. Right. No, I mean, it's incredibly violent, actually. It's so in keeping. I mean, the, these Miss Marple stories have such a dark underbelly often. Like, you know, remember back to the body in the library. Like, that right. God, that is such a, a dark murder plot. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't shot by a bow and arrow, but they wanted it to seem as though she was shot by a bow and arrow for purposes of framing Alfred. She was stabbed in the neck with an arrow. Yeah. So just to be clear to everybody what the mechanics here are, Mrs. Creswell brings Lou her tea. She shuts the door to the library. She locks the door to the library. She runs outside, changes clothes, runs outside to be back kneeling in the garden to look like she's Miss Greenshaw gardening. 
Then she screams so that Lou sees it out the window with the arrow that she's holding in her hands. Then she runs back into the house and she drags Miss Greenshaw's body into the downstairs. You can hear like some tumbling china. And then... Nat Fletcher comes in because you had to have somebody with at least significant strength in order to jab the arrow into her jugular. So then after that happens, Mrs. Creswell runs back upstairs. Nat Fletcher follows her, locks her into the room. Then he runs and changes into a constable outfit so that he can go back outside, pretend to be the constable who showed up. Then after they see him as a constable, he goes back into his normal clothes, goes back into his car, drives around to the gas station, so then he has an alibi that he's been lost. Then he circles all the way back around after the real police come. Right, and he, and he had presumably been around the premises, um, mm-hmm. I guess, testing this whole theory out and testing the costume out, which is why Miss Greenshaw had seen a policeman lurking around. And that's why she mentioned a policeman at the beginning of the story. Yeah, that's what the assumption is, right? Yeah, which is a little strange. But again, like I never mind those odd little details because it's Christy playing extremely fair. You know, get just giving us so many clues that they defy credulity. And <laughs> yet know- we still don't get it. <laughs> Do you know what it reminds me of a little bit? Um, do you know at the beginning of Home Alone when Joe Pesci shows up at the house in yes. a cop uniform? Yes. And he says, I'd like a word with you, sir. Am I under arrest or something? No, 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 no. It's uh, Christmas time. There's always a lot of burglaries around the holidays. So we're just checking the neighborhood to see if everyone's taking the proper precautions. That's all. And then he smiles and his gold tooth glints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the light. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's exactly what Nat Fletcher was doing in his policeman uniform when Miss Greenshaw noticed him. And the play that he had been acting in was one in which there is a policeman character. And that was one of those moments when it seemed like Miss Marple was just twittering on about nonsense and Inspector Welch was like, oh, is she all there? But that was actually key information. It was James Barry's play, What Every Woman Knows. Yeah. I mean, the only other moment I I just wanted to pull out because it made me laugh, of course, involved Raymond West. It's when they're talking about how everyone has an alibi. And Raymond West says, I always think alibis are definitely suspicious. And Inspector Welch says, maybe, sir, you're talking as a writer. And then Raymond West says, I don't write detective stories. And Christy writes that he's horrified at the mere idea of writing detective stories. Oh, Raymond West. Oh, Raymond. Forcing his wife to change her name and... (laughs) Not only her last name, but her first name too. I know. Denigrating mystery novels. Oh, Raymond. (laughs) This is one of those stories that it's a breeze to read, but Mm -hmm. there's actually a lot going on in it. And it's quite complicated. It's very complicated. As you could probably tell from our summary of this. But I find that often these short stories, too, are almost like the best primers or primers, depending on how you want to pronounce that word, of Christie in general. I mean, we see all of these classic tropes and there's like a clarity to the way that they're presented when we go through the solution that I find really pleasing and, and sheds light, I think, on what she's often doing in the novels without a lot of the window dressing and smoke and mirrors of a ton of red herrings. But this is one of those short stories where, you know, it's complex enough that I think it all really works in oh, this short, I think it, short I think story. It, I think it's really good. I think it was helpful to spell out what actually happened because it's a little bit unclear unless you go back and read it again what's actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's one of those appearances are completely deceiving kind of plots. It's a mini, you know what it is? It's a miniature version of Death on the Nile where it's much more complicated than it seems to be on the surface. And you, when, you, when you actually have to parse out the movements, it's quite complicated or even evil under the sun. You know, those even, solutions are really hard to go through. Right, they are. Yeah, it's a surprisingly complicated story. Although, again, easy to read, you know, very little marble in it. But that's par for the course sometimes with the Marple story is that you don't get that much Marple unless she's actually solving it. 
I never get enough marble. So I mean, uh, well, I know. So of course you would think it was a minimal amount. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. But it's one of the few Miss Marble short stories that doesn't involve a story within a story, which is the framing device of mm-hmm. twelve out of thirteen of the thirteen problems. And we really only have about I think a half dozen Miss Marble short stories beyond that. And I think this is one of the most robust ones. And that's actually a good segue just into talking really briefly about the adaptation that exists for the short story because it aired in the Agatha Christie's Marple series, which was post Joan Hickson. That would be the ITV series. But interestingly, there was some talk during the Joan Hickson BBC series of adapting Greenshaw's Folly. I'm of course getting this from Mark Aldridge's Agatha Christie on screen. And apparently before the final season of that series, there were discussions to adapt some of the Miss Marple short stories because they did not adapt any of the Miss Marple short stories in the Joan Hickson series. And apparently the first choice was Greenshaw's Folly. And I can see why, because it feels it, it has as much detail as a full length novel. It does. I mean, the mystery is 100% robust enough to fill a feature-length adaptation. You you would have to fill out, especially, I think, some Miss Marple character beats and moments in it. But I think that's also very easily done. I mean, Greenshaw's Folly is in her neighborhood. They're close by. I don't think it would be all that difficult to make this a typical Miss Marple adaptation in which she's a bit more active. But apparently, Joan Hickson declined to start tackling the short stories and they ended up doing the last couple of novels after that, and then that series was done. But this is where the Agatha Christie's Marple series was interesting because not only did they adapt all of the Miss Marple novels in the ITV series, first starring Geraldine McEwen and then Julia McKenzie, we have six seasons of that total, but they did also do several short stories. Unfortunately, what they mainly did beyond the Miss Marple novels was to take non-Marple novels and insert Miss Marple into them, which was usually, I think, fairly unsuccessful. But they did occasionally try to adapt some of the short stories. We actually talked about when they adapted The Blue Geranium, which was one of the 13 problems, Miss Marple short stories. And then Greenshaw's Folly is in the final sixth season of the series. So this is when Julia McKenzie was playing Miss Marple. It's the second episode of that sixth and final season, which aired in 2014. And this one is a little bit of a mashup of Greenshaw's Folly and The Thumb Mark of St. Peter, which is another one of the stories within the 13 problems, but it's the one that Miss Marple tells. She's the the one sort of narrating the story within the story. So it makes sense that they would have chosen that one. And this one too, although to be clear, it's about 95% Greenshaw's Folly and 5% The Thumb Mark of St. Peter. In fact, the only element of The Thumb Mark of St. Peter that's in here, so skip ahead if you don't want that story spoiled, is when Catherine Greenshaw is drugged, she manages to call Miss Marple on the telephone in her drugged state and say, Pilocarpine which the woman who answers misremembers as heap of haddock, which is also what happens in the short story. Um, Basically, Catherine Greenshaw realized that she had been drugged with atropine. And in this version of the story, she's an expert on poisonous plants. So that all makes sense. And she knew that the antidote was pilocarpine. But alas, she gets stabbed through the jugular with an arrow right after making that phone call. For the most part, it's a solid adaptation of Greenshaw's Folly, and I do think that this series tended to find its footing in the Julia McKenzie seasons, even though the episodes sometimes lack the pizzazz of the Geraldine McEwen seasons. There's a lot more made of the Lou Oxley storyline, which is fair enough. She and her son Archie are seen fleeing to Miss Marple from Lou's abusive husband. We see the literal scars on their bodies later on, uh, and Miss Marple brings Lou to Greenshaw's Folly herself, to her friend. Catherine Greenshaw, who hires Lou as her secretary. And then we're at Greenshaw's Folly for the rest of the episode, and everyone is on the scene. Catherine Greenshaw herself, played by Fiona Shaw. Mrs. Creswell, played rather icily but flatly by Julia Sawalha. Alfred Pollock, Nathaniel Fletcher, and even Horace Bindler, who in this version is not a literary critic, but a journalist staying at the house under false pretenses because he's digging into a decades-old scandal involving Miss Greenshaw's father, who was injecting orphans with polio to figure out how to refine a vaccine. 
I'm not sure that I needed a hideous vaccine subplot added to the story at this particular moment in time, given where we are in the world. But uh, other than that, I think the padding is pretty sensible. It's worth noting that there are a few characters added, but no Raymond or Joan West, which I'm sure would have made the textual Raymond extremely angry. They do also retain this moment in the short story that I appreciated, which we didn't mention when we were doing our summary, which is where Miss Marple sees what Miss Greenshaw had supposedly been doing in her garden right before she was shot and says, Yukosa, Thimble Campanula, the real Miss Greenshaw would never have mistaken those lovely plants for weeds. So that's how she knows it couldn't really have been Miss Greenshaw in the garden. Also, I would say in some ways this adaptation actually shores up a few of the loose ends that we pointed out in our summary. Miss Greenshaw isn't a sadist employer who pretends to leave all her money to her housekeeper, Mrs. Creswell. And Mrs. Creswell and Nathaniel Fletcher are actually related in this version. They're a mother and son duo as opposed to a stepmother and son duo meaning that Nathaniel is just pretending to be a Greenshaw. So their only motivation is to continue with this ruse that Nathaniel is Miss Greenshaw's blood nephew and ensure that no will whatsoever is produced. That makes a bit more sense. Also, Alfred is Catherine Greenshaw's illegitimate son, as opposed to the original Mr. Greenshaw's illegitimate grandson. So that just lines up the motivations of both the villains, Creswell and Fletcher, as well as the victim, Miss Greenshaw, I think a lot more squarely than in the original text. I think we've talked a lot about how we generally tend to prefer the Joan Hickson series, but I've grown to appreciate what they were doing on this series. And I and I certainly appreciate the fact that they were willing to tackle some of this extra Miss Marple material. I don't even mm-hmm. want to call it extra, but I suppose just non-novel material that we have because some of these short stories are great. So I applaud them for the effort. And, you know, if after finishing Greenshaw's Folly, the short story, you, you want a little bit more Greenshaw's folly in your life, I would say, take a look at the adaptation. Give it a watch. Yeah. I mean, listen, what else are you doing right now? (laughs) Indeed. Well, I think that is Green Shaw's Folly. It's been a while since we covered a Miss Marple short story. I, for one, was delighted to revisit Miss Marple in her shorter form. I think it quite suits her in those Miss mm-hmm. Marple-ish puzzles. We will be covering a novel next time. And, oh, happy day. It is a Miss Marple novel. Catherine, what are we covering? We are covering 450 from Paddington, which it's really up there in a lot of people's uh, rankings of their personal favorites. I have very, very fond memories of 450 from Paddington, or as it was titled in the U.S., what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw with an exclamation point. I used to, I, oh, I no. used to oh, definitely read it with an exclamation point when I was a kid. <laughs> 450 from Paddington is a much better title. So Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I have um, fond memories of it, so I'm very much looking forward to uh, talking about it. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. If you would like to hear more from us, you can always check us out on our Patreon site. We are over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We actually just posted an episode about an early Agatha Christie televised biography, which we had a lot of fun watching. We Interesting watch for anybody who wants to, you know, spend some time on BritBox. Absolutely, yes. For those who haven't yet discovered the wonders of Bird Box, at least in the U.S., one yeah, thing we if have you, learned if, right. yeah, is that it is a different beast between the U.S. and the U.K. For sure. So, U.K. listeners, fear not. We understand you on that front. You can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We've actually gotten a number of listener submissions in response to our call for testimonials, if you will, on reading the stuck-in-its-time aspects of Christie. So if you still would like to send us something to that email address, we are very much open and can't wait to listen to as many of those submissions as you would like to send. That you were, Absolutely. You were still definitely in good time to do that if you should so like or just email us and say hello you can find us on twitter at all about the dame Catherine is on twitter at brobcat our facebook page is all about agatha and our instagram handle is at all about agatha and please take a moment to give us a rating and review if you haven't already done so and we'll see you next time bye bye bye